0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Uh, we're gonna do, we're going through something a little bit crazy in this country right now. Something, We've never experienced before. This whole thing of social distancing is a new thing. It's not really new for me. Not really new for Jeff. I mean, I've practiced this my whole life, but uh, it, it's hard as far as a church goes to be here and to have an empty place you know, without people here. It's, it's difficult. This virus, though, has caused a quasi-quarantine, which means that many people can't work and they're wondering how they're going to pay, by bill, their, pay their bills. My daughter owns a salon, does hair, and you know customers are canceling. Some people are still coming in. <laughs> I was in there the other day at my daughter's salon, and there's a lady getting her hair colored. And I thought, we're in the middle of a crisis, and you're getting your hair done. She goes, my priorities are right. <laughs> so whatever. So many businesses are being shut down, uh, causing small businesses to wonder how they're going to survive. And I think fear and discouragement are rampant, and they're being spread by the media. You know, some are saying this is a government takeover. They're removing all our freedoms. The government's just going to take over our lives more than they already have. Others are predicting financial crash that will send this country into depression. Others are saying it's an end-time plague, and we are in the end times. And let me just say that whatever's happening, God is still in control. We don't need to panic. Whatever happens is under the sovereign control of God. Now, many are not worried about the virus, but what our government is doing in response to it. And that's kind of my position. Viruses come, viruses go. I'm not worried about this virus, but I am kind of concerned about what our government's response to it is. And I guess I'm concerned because our government is corrupt. The politicians are doing all they can to take away our freedoms as they line their own pockets. And it seems like justice has left the building as these corrupt politicians continue to get away with murder. Some literally. You know, Epstein didn't kill himself. All right? Now, let me ask you this. Does injustice bother you? Does it make you furious when law enforcement or courts or whatever else, politicians are corrupt? Do you maybe, does it cause you to question the sovereignty of God in the midst of these kind of circumstances? Well, let me just remind you what the scriptures teach. The trial of Christ was corrupt. It was unjust. He was innocent, yet they condemned him to death. And here's what I want you to understand. The unjust trial was God's plan to bring us grace. Look at Acts 2, 22-23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Yeshua of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Yeshua delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, the word delivered here is a word used commonly of those who are surrendered over to their enemies. God delivered over Yeshua to death. It says He was delivered not by the will of men, not because they plotted it out and God looked way ahead and saw what they were going to do and said, I better work this into my plan. No. He was delivered... By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God laid out this plan. He marked it out. He said, This is my will. Yeshua will die on Passover by crucifixion. And through Christ's unjust treatment, grace has come to all his elect. Would you agree with that? Nod your heads. <laughs> Amen. It may seem strange to you that injustice can be part of the plan of a just God, but it often is. Would you say that Joseph being sold by his brothers into slavery was unjust? Would you say that his imprisonment by Potiphar was unjust? So it was basically his wife's scheme. He had nothing to do with it. Notice how Joseph's father felt. And I thought about this verse this week, and I thought this is an awesome verse for us at this time. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Now, Jacob was dealing with some difficult circumstances. He had lost Joseph. He thought Joseph was dead. And Joseph was his favorite son, the son of Rachel, his beloved wife. There's a famine in the land, and they're running out of food. And Simeon is now in Egypt, and the prime minister is holding him there. The prime minister is also insisting that Benjamin come. And so Benjamin, the young son of Rachel, now appears to be gone also. So Joseph's dead, he thinks. Simeon's gone. They can't get more food unless Benjamin goes to Egypt. And Jacob responds, all this has come against me. I think many of you may be feeling this way right now. When you're looking at the circumstances, everything's being shut down. People can't work. Money's not coming in. It's, you know, people are dying, some from this virus. And with all that's happening in our country, you may feel that things are out of control. But they're not. Listen, this particular verse, at this very moment, at the very moment that Jacob uttered all this has come against me. Actually, everything was working for his good. Joseph, the son that he thought was dead, was not only alive, he was prime minister of Egypt, the greatest kingdom on earth at that time. Egypt was the place they had grain that could solve all their food problems. In addition, Joseph, the prime minister, was the beloved son of Rachel, and Joseph, the prime minister, was longing to be with his family. The very time when Jacob said all this has come against me is the very time that God was working everything that was happening for His ultimate blessing and good. It was through Joseph's unjust treatment that grace came to his entire family. To Jacob it looked horrible at that moment. To him life as he knew it was over when in fact the sovereign god was working these terrible circumstances for his good believers hang on to that thought we're not in a situation where everything is against us god is in control in our last study we talked last week about the sovereignty of god in circumstances and this morning i want to follow it up with a message on the sovereignty of god in our duty You know, God's sovereignty doesn't dismiss our duty. Now, last week I said that God's sovereignty is absolute. He not only created the universe, He controls it, all of it. And He controls it all in accordance with what He has ordained. Do you realize that whatever takes place in time, whether it be COVID-19 or anything else, is what God planned from eternity past? The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Now, the Bible puts it this way in Ephesians 1.11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His own will. In other words, God has a plan that He put in position and He's working everything according to that plan. And all that comes to pass in our lives is in accordance with that eternal plan of the all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving God and our Father. The sovereignty of God is absolute. It's irresistible. It's infinite. God does as He pleases, only as He pleases, Always as He pleases. Whatever takes place in time is but the outworking of that which He decreed from eternity. Now, if that's too strong for you, you don't understand the God of the Bible. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Some translations say He does whatever He pleases. Because He's God and He's absolutely sovereign. He can do whatever He pleases. Nothing happens. Nothing happens outside the sovereign will of God. And understanding the totality of God's sovereignty usually raises some questions. Like, if God is in control of all things, including our actions, how do we have a duty to do anything? And how many of you believe that God is sovereign? Raise your hands. Don't see those hands. Now let me ask you this question. How many of you feel you still have duties in life? Do you feel that you have a duty to raise your children, to maintain your house, to fix your car, to love your neighbor? Even though God's sovereign, you still have those duties. If you believe that God's sovereign and whatever takes place in time is but the outworking of which He decreed from eternity, why would you feel a duty to do these things? And why pray? I mean, nothing we could possibly do could change God's plan. So why do anything? Well, the doctrine of God's sovereignly properly understood won't paralyze us from carrying out our duties. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is a comfort to us. It assures us that He's able to do what He promised us. See, if God wasn't sovereign, He would make promises like we do. Maybe with all good intentions, but without the power to carry them out. But because He's sovereign... He can, in fact, carry out every promise he has made, but the bare fact of God's sovereignty raises one big question. If God is in control of all things, including our actions, why do we have a duty to do things? God's sovereignty and our duty, these two doctrines have caused much debate over the years. On one side of the spectrum, to the far right you have the hyper-Calvinists. Now, when I say hyper calvinist I mean hyper calvinist When an Arminian calls somebody a hyper-Calvinist, they mean a Calvinist. Okay, they, they, To them, a hyper-Calvinist is someone who believes what Calvin teaches. Now, a hyper-Calvinist is someone who goes beyond what Calvin taught. And a hyper-Calvinist would say, if God wants it done, He'll do it without your help or mine. Hyper-Calvinists don't have a duty. They don't feel a duty to share the gospel or do anything. God does it all. And then on the far left spectrum, you have the Armenian who says, "If we don't do it, it won't get done." And in the middle of these, you have a biblical Calvinism, yes, Calvinism is biblical that says, God is sovereign, but we have a duty to share the gospel. We have a duty to love our neighbor. We have a duty to raise our children. They understand God's sovereignty and understand they still have duty. The sovereignty of God and the duty of man seem to be irreconcilable to many people's thinking. Many ask, how can they both be true? Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh establishes his steps. And then we compare that with Ephesians 5.15 that says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise. Now, to the Western thinker, these verses pose a problem. How do we have a duty to walk wisely if God is directing our steps? See, the problem here is that the Bible is an Eastern book and we live in a Western culture. And that causes some trouble in understanding things. David Biven writes this, In any attempt to understand the Bible, there is no substitute for a knowledge of ancient Jewish custom and practice I agree with that we have to understand some of these things to totally understand what we're studying in the Bible the Bible in its original languages is humanly speaking a product of the Hebrew mind and I think two of the great tragedies of the last 2,000 years have been this one the removal of all things Hebrew from the church the church has divorced herself from her Hebrew roots and I'm not talking about the Hebrew roots movement because I think that is way off base. I've done a couple messages on that. Go back and listen to them. I'm not talking about that movement, but I'm talking just understanding our Hebrew roots. In the Byzantine period, any person who became a member of the church in North Africa, Augustine's church, had to take an oath that they would never read Hebrew, they would never eat Jewish food, they would never have Jewish friends, they would never go to Jewish festivals, and then never read a Jewish Bible because he just wanted to erase all things Hebrew. Well, another problem the church has is the influence of Greek philosophy upon the interpretation of Scripture. So when Greek logic is used to understand Scripture, the reader is filled with feelings of contradiction. The biblical offer, authors never argue the existence of God. They only assume it. God is not understood philosophically, but functionally. He acts. The Hebrew... Primarily thought of Him pictorially, in terms of personality and activity, not in terms of pure being or in any static sense. There are basically two ways of thinking or approaching truth. you got Eastern thought and Western thought, which is Greek. The Greek philosophers said the human being is God, and one of the four qualities of the human being they elevated to the throne was the mind. Information is prior to experience. Now, Westerners are abstract thinkers. We like to put information in definition and proposition form. We like organization. We like words that carefully explain. For example, if someone were to ask you, who is God? What would you say? How would you describe God to somebody? What would you tell them? Well, I think most people, most Christians today would say, well, He's love. We've been studying that in 1 John, and God definitely... One of His attributes is love. We might say, well, He's almighty. He's holy. He's just. He's righteous. He's awesome. He's omnipresent. Omnipotent. Those are all true. But close your eyes. Go on, close them, all of you. And tell me what you see when I say these words. Love. What do you see? Just. Holy. What do you see? You don't see anything because these are not picture words. They're definitions. This is information that doesn't really affect us. It's abstract. We can't we can't see it. A Hebrew, an eastern thinker thinks in the form of story or picture. If you ask them, who is God? The answer, God is my rock. God is my shepherd. God is my bread. He is my shade. He's my living water. He's my father. These are all very personal. It's God is my. It's also very pictorial. You can see these things. The most common symbol in the Tanakh for God is what? It's shepherd. The second most common is rock. God is my rock. Now, look at Mark 4, 24. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. Now this phrase, pay attention to what you hear, is obscured in the English. And it is my personal conviction that the Bible was written in Hebrew, the New Testament even. Maybe not written in Hebrew, but it was in Hebrew before it was put down, maybe into Greek. But some of it, I I think, was put into Hebrew. And this is very Hebraic here. Um, It's obscured in the English, but the words pay attention here are from the Greek word blepo, and blepo means to look at. So the Greek text says, look at what you hear. Now you can only do this if what you're hearing is in a pictorial form. So the Hebrews think differently than we do, and we need to have an understanding of how they think if we're going to properly interpret scriptures. The Hebrew often made use of block logic. Marvin Wilson wrote this about Hebraic reasoning. He says, Concepts were expressed in self-contained units or blocks of thought. These blocks did not necessarily fit together in any obviously rational or harmonious pattern, particularly when one block represented the human perspective on truth and the other represented the divine. This way of thinking created a propensity for paradox antimony, and apparent contradiction, as one block stood in tension and often illogical relation to the other. Hence, polarity of thought and dielectric often characterize block logic. Now, the Greeks used a linear logic that follows in steps from premise to conclusion, each step linked closely to the next in a coherent, rational, logical fashion. The conclusion is almost always limited to one view, a human being's limited perspective on reality. Hebraic reasoning does not focus as much on linear thought or linear narrative. Instead, it focuses on blocks of content or subject matter. For example, the Gospel narratives have chronological problems in them at points. Now, because in the Hebrew mind, chronology takes a backseat to theme and content. Chronology is subsumed by more important principles. Now this doesn't mean that the Bible cannot be trusted in its chronology. Rather, we need to understand where it's attempting to be chronological and where it's not. Rabbi Akiva, who lived one generation after Yeshua, was regarded as one of the greatest Jewish rabbis that ever lived. The Talmud compares him favorably to Moses, which is the ultimate compliment the Jew could give him. Now, a pronouncement of Rabbi Akiva is in effect an affirmation of the two contradictory statements. Akiva said this, All is subject to providence, yet man possesses free will. Now, I would take issue with him on free will. I wouldn't have a problem with volition, yet man possesses volition. I don't think the will is free. We've talked about that in the past. All is subject to providence, yet man possesses volition. See, the Hebrew mind was willing to accept the truth taught on both sides of an apparent paradox. It recognized that mystery and apparent contradiction are often signs of the divine. Now, the renowned biblical scholar, Rabbi Joseph Soleviachek writes this, We Jews are practical. We are more interested in discovering what God wants man to do than we are in describing God's essence. He goes on to say, Judaism is never afraid of contradictions. It acknowledges that full reconciliation of the two is possible only in God. He is the coincidence of opposites. Now, It is particularly difficult for Westerners, those whose thought patterns have been influenced more by Greeks and Romans than by Hebrews, to piece together the block logic of Scripture. Eastern thinkers can live with the tensions and paradox surrounding block logic. Now, to the Jew, the deed is always more important than the creed. He was not stymied by language that appeared contradictory. From a human point of view, Neither did he feel compelled to reconcile what seemed irreconcilable. He believed that God ultimately was greater than any human attempt to systematize truth. And Christianity has written a lot of creeds. I think we're all aware of that. Now, let me ask you this. Can you think of one Hebrew creed? See, it was Gentile Christians influenced by Greek philosophy who both intellectualized and systematized Christian doctrine. The biblical Hebrews and the apostolic era of the church had no formal theology of such. Nothing was systematized. Now, they had certain definite things they believed, but not a systematic theology. Intellectually, we're Greeks. We're not Hebrews. And we apply Aristotelian and Socratic thought patterns to particularly everything. It's surprisingly difficult to escape these patterns and enter into a Hebraic mindset. We insist on rendering everything into logically consistent patterns or systematizing it, organizing it into tight, carefully reasoned theologies. We cannot live with inconsistency or apparent contradictions. So if we're going to understand the Bible and really get everything out of it, we're going to have to understand it Hebraically, not Hellenistically. And this is going to require a philosophical and intellectual paradigm shift on our part. Now, with that said, what I want us to look at this morning is the subject of the sovereignty of God and the duty of man. And this seemed like an apparent contradiction to many people. That's why I just spent a lot of time talking about Hebraic thought. There's a tendency on some individual's part to see the doctrine of sovereignty as fatalism. For example, on the subject of, let's say, we got a hurricane coming, which is typical around here, the fatalist would say, God's going to do what He's going to do. So I'm not going to concern myself about it. I mean, they would make no preparations. They wouldn't run to the store and look for any supplies. They wouldn't make sure they would make sure they had batteries or water. They'd, they wouldn't bring in or tie down things from their lawn. They'd say, if God has determined this thing to blow through my window, it will. Because they know God is sovereign over the weather, they wouldn't make any preparations. And they wouldn't even bother to pray about the situation. You can see how this could become an excuse for all kinds of irresponsible behavior. On the other hand, the person who rightly understands God's sovereignty would make all the preparation that wisdom dictates while the whole time praying for wisdom and protection. Now you might ask, how do prayer and sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, fit? How do they go together? Or if God is sovereign... Why should we pray? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. Let's think about this for a minute. If God wasn't sovereign, (laughs) what good would it do to pray? Why pray to God who can't answer your prayers? The sovereignty of God, when properly properly understood, is an encouragement to pray, not an excuse to fall into fatalism. Let's look at how the New Testament saints dealt with the situation in light of the sovereignty of God. In the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, Peter and John are threatened by the Jewish Sanhedrin, commanded not to speak anymore in the name of Yeshua. And when they shared this with the other believers, the response was, well, God is sovereign, I guess He'll do what He wants to. No, that wasn't their response at all. Their response was what? Their response was prayer. Acts 2, Acts 4, 24. And when they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God, that's prayer, and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now I want you to notice that the first response of this group of believers was to turn to God in prayer. That really should be our first response in each and every situation. They're going to God in prayer because He has commanded them to preach the gospel of Yeshua to all the world. And the rulers, the Sanhedrin, had commanded them not to preach. They had told the court that they would not obey them, and they all knew that this was going to get ugly. So, they go to God in prayer, and they begin their prayers by affirming God as the sovereign creator of all things. Acts four twenty-seven through 29 For truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Yeshua, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So he said, the peoples of Israel gathered together to do whatever your hand And your plan had predestined to take place. Now notice verse 28. What does that teach us? Here's what this verse teaches us. There were no Arminians in the early church. They all knew that God was sovereign over everything, even the death of His Son. These evil men were only doing what God's hand and counsel had foreordained. Their belief in the sovereignty of God didn't cause them to fall into fatalism, but was an encouragement to pray. Because prayer assumes the sovereignty of God. Now, what did they pray for? Did they pray for protection? God, please protect us from these evil men. No. They said they prayed for boldness. They were more concerned about their mission than their comfort. And I think we today in America need to be doing the same thing. We need to be praying. We need to be praying for our country, for our rulers. I mean, all kinds of people are second-guessing everything that's happening, and I'm not in a position to make these decisions. I'm not a politician. I'm just praying for them, you know, that they would make the right decisions. I'm certainly not agreeing with things they're doing, but I do understand that God's sovereign. And then things, all these things might seem like they're against us, but they're really not, because God is in control. And then we have Paul, who, more than any other New Testament writer, taught the church about the sovereignty of God. And he lived trusting in that sovereignty. But notice that he still encouraged believers to pray. Philemon one twenty two. He says, At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. See, prayer was the expression of his confidence in the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty does not negate our duty to pray, but rather makes it possible to pray with confidence. Now, just as God's sovereignty doesn't set aside our duty to pray, it also doesn't negate our duty to act wisely. And acting wisely in this context means that we use all legitimate, biblical means at our disposal to avoid harm to ourselves and others and to bring about what we believe the right course of events. Now, we talked about this week and as far as meeting as a church, and we decided, you know, President Trump had asked of meetings of no more than 10 people, so we actually it's hard to believe we actually exceed that 10. So we decided let's use wisdom and let's not meet this week and let's give, give this thing a, this storm a chance maybe to blow over. So that's why we decided not to meet. Now David, gives us a good good illustration, I think, of acting wisely as he fled from Saul. You say him fl- fleeting from Saul was wisdom? Yeah, it was, because Saul was determined to kill David. So David did everything he could to avoid Saul. He acted wisely. David knew that he was going to be king someday, because God had told him that, 1 Samuel 16, 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. He anointed him as king over Israel. And the Spirit of Yahweh rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. He had already been anointed to succeed Saul. And David knew that God's sovereign. David knew that God would carry out His purpose. He says in Psalm fifty-seven two, I cry out to God, Most High, to God who fulfills His purposes for me. So David knew that God would fulfill His purpose for him, yet David didn't just sit down and say, Saul can't hurt me because God ordained that I be king, and I can't be king if I'm dead. So he just sat down and didn't worry about Saul. No, David fled from Saul. He took every precaution so that Saul couldn't kill him. He didn't presume on the sovereignty of God, but he acted wisely in dependence upon God to bless his efforts. He ran from Saul, and he prayed to God. We see the same wisdom in Paul's life. Paul was a prisoner of Rome. He's on his way to Rome when the ship was caught in the midst of a severe storm. And by the way, Paul told them, don't leave. We we need to stay here because this is going to come to great harm if we, we leave. Well, let's pick up the narrative verse 19 of Acts 27. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of her being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. I love that. That's probably exactly what everybody wanted to hear, right? They're all stressed out, they're fear of death. And Paul stands up, say, you should have listened to me, and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, how could Paul say this? How did he know that no one would die? He knew because God told him. Verse 23-26, through For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, of whom I belong, and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So God had given him all those who sailed with him. He was going to save their life. He says, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. So Paul, the man, and the men on the ship, had a promise from God that there would be no loss of life. Now at this point, did they all just sit back and enjoy the ride? No, they still used wisdom. They did all they could to save the ship and themselves. And when some of them tried to leave the ship in lifeboats, Paul says this, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Why did Paul say this? Well, even though he had a promise from God that none would die, he still acted wisely. He used all legitimate biblical means at his disposal to avoid harm to himself and others and to bring about what he believed to be the right course of events. So Paul didn't see a conflict between God's sovereignty and and his duty to act wisely. Paul knew God's sovereign will on the matter. We're all going to be saved, and yet he worked to bring it about. We don't know God's sovereign will in specific situations. Most times we don't have a clue. So we too should use wisdom, and we should act responsibly, praying the whole time. We need to act wisely because God usually works through means. All right? God doesn't just normally, supernaturally do something. He usually carries out His sovereign plan through the means of using us. And I think we see this in the story of Hezekiah in 2 Kings twenty one through 5 In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed to Yahweh, saying, Now, O Yahweh, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle of the court, the word of Yahweh came to him, Turn back. And say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says Yahweh, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. That's pretty cool. God says, you prayed, I heard it. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of Yahweh. So Hezekiah had been told by God through the prophet that he's going to die. Get your house in order. You're going to die. But still, he prayed. Hezekiah didn't say, well, God, you're sovereign, you're going to do what you're going to do, I'm dead. He cried out to God in prayer, and God added 15 years to his life. He says, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. That's a, that's a great story. That's an incredible story. Hezekiah prays, and God grants him 15 years. God told him, I will add 15 years to your life. That's a promise from God. And Hezekiah could depend on it. But notice the next verse. And Isaiah said, Bring a cake of figs, and let them take it and lay it on the boil that he may recover. Now, what if Hezekiah said, God's sovereign? He said, I'm going to live 15 more years. I don't need the figs. Thanks anyway. Well, I believe he would have died because God uses means of the figs to preserve Hezekiah's life. This is some kind of homeopathic medicine. So he laid these figs on whatever the problem was and they brought a healing. Now we also see how God uses means to carry out His sovereign will in the book of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, he had the people... he and the people faced the threat of attack from their enemies. They were constantly under attack. Nehemiah 4, 7 and 8. When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashtonites heard that repairing the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Now notice carefully, Nehemiah's response here. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them that night. So they prayed and they set a guard. So he turns to God in prayer and then he posts a guard. They prayed to God. They acted in wisdom. We need some guards here. We need to know if people are coming. We need to know what's going on. It goes on in 4.16-18. through 18. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held their spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leader stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored and worked with one hand. Alright, so they're working with one hand, and it goes on to say, and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. So, Did they have their weapons with them because they didn't trust in God? No, they did trust God. He says in verse 20, In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So they knew that God would fight for them. But they also knew that God uses means, so they're ready to use whatever they had to fight themselves. Nehemiah 4.9 really gives us a good picture of what it means to trust God. We pray to our God and we set a guard as protection against them. So prayer is the acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and of our dependence upon Him to act on our behalf. Wisdom is the acknowledgement of our duty to use all legitimate means. And we don't need to separate those two. I think we also see this truth illustrated in 1 Chronicles 5:18 through 20 The Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, and, valiant, and had valiant men who carried shield and sword and drew the bow, expert in war, 44,760 able to go to war. They waged war against the Hagarites, Getur, Naphish, and Nodab. And when they prevailed over them, the Hagarites... And all who were with them, now I want you to notice here, these are expert men in war, all right? They're not slouches, they know exactly what they're doing. Goes on, were given into their hands, for they cried out to God in the battle, and He granted their urgent plea because they trusted Him. So here we have a bunch of well trained, well armed warriors. They had wisely prepared for battle, but they didn't trust their training, they didn't trust in their ability. They used wisdom, they prepared for battle, and they trusted God when the battle came. For they cried out to God in the midst of the battle. This is prayer, people. They're calling out to God. They prayed because they trusted God and not their own ability. Please notice carefully why it says that God answered their prayers. Because they trusted in Him. Now, I really hope that you can see from this that trust in God does not negate acting wisely on our part. I mean, we can do all we can do to prepare for a certain situation, and while doing it, we trust completely in God, not in our own wisdom. All of our wisdom and planning is useless without the Lord. Look at Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless Yahweh watches over the city, The watchman stays awake in vain. This verse sums up our responsibility. Building and watching. In all areas of life, physical and spiritual, we should be building and watching. But according to this verse, none of our efforts will be prosperous apart from God. This verse speaks of God Himself doing the building and watching, but that doesn't mean that we're not involved. It means that we are totally dependent upon Him if our efforts are to be successful. This is dependent discipline. We are totally dependent upon God, yet we discipline ourselves to do what we know is wise. And I think that's what the Christian life is all about. That's how we live the Christian life, in dependent discipline. We discipline ourselves to do the things we need to do to live holy and righteous before God, but we are dependent on God for the strength and constantly in prayer to God. We need to trust God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. There are times and circumstances in life when we can do nothing but trust in God's sovereignty. An example of this would be seen in Deuteronomy 8 3. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. See, the Israelites during this time didn't need to work for their food. All they needed to do was trust God and He provided for them. God was teaching them in this time to trust Him. So we must also trust Him to enable us to do what we can't do for ourselves. For example, the farmer must work very hard to produce a crop. He plows, he plants, he waters, he harvests. But he is completely dependent on God to make the crop grow. God controls the forces of nature which He depends upon to bring forth that harvest. We all know that the farmer has to depend upon God for the harvest. But what we might overlook is the fact that the farmer is also dependent on God for the ability to plow, to plant, and to harvest. See, believer, every ability that He has, every ounce of strength we have, every bit of knowledge and skill comes from God. Do we understand that? 1 Corinthians 4.7 For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? This is a great verse against pride. What, What in the world do you have? What ability do you have? What talent? What looks? What anything do you have that you didn't receive? Everything you have comes from the hand of God. If then you received it, Why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Why do you act like you're some special kind of person? We don't have anything that we didn't get from the hand of God. Deuteronomy 8.18 You shall remember Yahweh your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. If you're wealthy, you got that because God gave you that ability to make that happen. That He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. So, believers, everything we are. Everything we have comes from the hand of God. We're dependent on Him for every breath we take, for every beat of our heart. There are times when we can do nothing but simply trust God to work out the situation. And there are times when we have to work. There's things we have to do. In both situations, we are equally, though, to trust in God. He's in control. Rest in that control. You know, Believer, we're never to use the doctrine of God's sovereignty as an excuse for our laziness or our lack of wisdom. Because God's sovereign, should we just sit back and count on Him to feed us, count on Him to take care of us? If He has planned for us to eat, we will, right? I mean, it's a sovereign plan. Wrong. God uses means to accomplish His ends, and the way He feeds us is through labor. Proverbs 20, verse 4. The sluggard does not plow in autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Now let me ask you something. According to this verse, why will the sluggard have nothing at harvest? Was it because God sovereignly willed that he'd have nothing? That's not what the verse says. It says he doesn't plow. That's why he won't get anything. If you don't do the work, you're not going to get the harvest. How about this verse? Ecclesiastes 10.18. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Now the house is not said to decay because of God's sovereign plan, but because of man's laziness. See, if a student fails an exam because he didn't study, he can't blame it on God's sovereign will, but on his own lack of diligence. God is sovereign over everything that happens in life, but we still have a duty to act wisely. Don't ever use God's sovereignty as an excuse for your failure to use wisdom. Alexander Carson put it this way. Let us learn that as God has promised to protect us and provide for us, it is through the means of His appointment, vigilance, prudence, and industry that we are to look for these blessings. See, the Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign. He rules the universe. He controls everything that happens in time. The Bible also teaches just as clearly that we have a duty as His children to act wisely. So we need to hold equally to both. Doing our duty as it's revealed to us in the Scripture and trusting God to sovereignly work out His purpose in us and through us. I pray, believers, that the teaching of God's sovereignty will not be misused by us to neglect our duties. But that we will encourage us to pray and to act wisely as we trust in our sovereign God. As I said as we began this message, we're in a, an unprecedented time here in this country, and it can be a scary time if we let it be because we don't know what's going to happen to our economy. What is our government doing? They're really overreaching in a lot of areas. How dangerous is this virus? We've got all kinds of problems we're dealing with. But believer, God is in control. We need to rest in Him and act in wisdom. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for the privilege to look at Your Word together, Lord. I pray that You would help us, Father, to understand the balance between these two things. That we would understand that You are absolutely in sovereign, sovereign over everything that happens in time. We can rest in Your loving care for us. But also, help us also to understand that we have a duty to act wisely in every situation. May we balance these out in our lives. May we be the kind of people, Lord, that brings glory to You. Father, we pray for our nation right now. We pray for our leaders, Lord. I pray that You'd grant them wisdom. I pray they would seek You, Lord, at this time for wisdom and knowing how to respond, what to do. Lord, thank You for Your grace to us. We are a blessed people. Help us to rest in Your care for us. Help us to be an encouragement to those around us. Use us during this time, Lord, to be a light, to be an encouragement to our great God and Savior. Thank You, Lord, for Your love for us. Amen.